0: This morning, we were in Psalm 103. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Psalm 118. This morning, we considered the theme of thanksgiving from a redemptive standpoint. Thanksgiving as it relates to the God of our salvation. The fact that regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life, regardless of our consideration of those circumstances, even uh, though though we, we, we touched on it, even outside of the Lord's sovereignty and direction in regard to those circumstances, we considered primarily this reality that if you are a born-again believer, if you are secure through a personal relationship, faith in Jesus Christ, then you have everything to be thankful for. You have an inheritance that is to come. You have a home in heaven. You have a, a place reserved in heaven for you. And that is worth Thanksgiving. And I encourage you that as you step into this week in the context of Thanksgiving, as you think toward Thanksgiving Day and what Thanksgiving Day is going to look like and, and your determinations as it relates to Thanksgiving, that you begin your time of Thanksgiving not so much with the food that's in front of you and the clothes that are on your back and, and, and those things which, which are, are wonderful things to be thankful for, but begin with the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Begin with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Begin with the reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Begin with that idea that he hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. With the reality that he hath not dealt with us according to our transgressions. Thank God for that. That as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our sins from us. We also spoke of the fact that the call unto thanksgiving is a call which undergirds every circumstance because we seek to live above those circumstances, that regardless of what is happening in my life physically, I have a home in heaven, I have a God who loves me, and I have salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just take a moment here. I need to make sure that this, okay, wanted to make sure that that was recording. And these are wonderful truths. But even as we considered from Psalm 103 this morning, and we just sang about a few moments ago in A Worship the King, we are still dust, aren't we? Our our feet are made of clay. We are still feeble and frail. There are times when in our weakness, our fears and our sorrows seek to overcome. Our frustrations, the circumstances around us, the relationships, the the, uh, finances, whatever it might be, they seek to overwhelm us. We studied in Hebrews 11, in Tuesday nights not too long ago, the legacy of those who have gone before us. What Hebrews 12 calls the great cloud of witnesses. Men and women, upon whose shoulders we stand. The scriptures are not lacking in any essential lesson or testimony. And when it comes to the nature of our relationship to the physical circumstances within which we find ourselves, It is no different when it comes to the things in this world that would seek to overwhelm us, the fears and the frailties and the feebleness and the frustrations. It is no different. And our home base for this message, as I've just said, is in Psalm 118. It's what we're going to walk through primarily this evening. And we begin with verses one through four. Of Psalm 18, where the Bible tells us this, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth. Endureth forever. So our psalm begins with the purpose of its call, just as we saw uh, in this morning in Psalm 103, and uh, very common among the psalms that the beginning of the psalm uh, elucidates its theme for us. And the call of that that this psalm is, give thanks unto the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. Thanksgiving is the exhortation, and the root of this exhortation is. God's enduring mercy. In Psalm 103 this morning, the source of the blessing uh, of the Lord of which David gave thanks was God's haste to forgive, God's slowness to anger, the reality that God has removed my sin from me. That was the essence. I will bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. This evening, it's give thanks unto the Lord because His mercy... Endureth forever. A call to thank the Lord for his mercy. But in this case, the mercy is rooted not so much in the context of our spiritual redemption, but we'll see that it's rooted significantly more in the context of physical redemption, in the context of the material and the temporal, in the context of the now. So the psalmist calls for Israel to proclaim God's everlasting mercy. He calls for the house of Aaron. That would be the Levitical priesthood, right? Uh, there were singers within the Levitical priesthood, as we mentioned this morning, most likely the same this evening, that, that the psalmist would have given this over to uh, those that would sing in the temple, and many of them would, would be Levites, and so you'd have that, that concept there. House of Aaron, the priesthood, proclaim God's everlasting mercy. And then broadening that call, it's interesting because as we considered this morning, uh, David began with that call being kind of broad. Well, he started small, but then he broadened it to the angels, right? The hosts and the ministers. And then he brought it down to bless the Lord, O my soul. And in this uh, psalm, we see it begin with this idea of giving thanks unto the Lord. And then he says, Israel and the house of Aaron and all that fear the Lord, all that fear the Lord say, give thanks unto the Lord that it, because His mercy endures forever. And this is the context for our consideration this evening. So then we read in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist says, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do, or excuse me, I will not fear what can man do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, as we considered this morning, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, that doesn't mean people aren't going to set themselves against you, but the idea is if God be for us, what can anything else do to me? The worst thing they can do is send you home, right? The worst thing they can do is kill you, <laughs> And then you get to go home. If God be for us, who can be against us? David, or the psalmist, and I don't believe it's David here, the psalmist asked, I will, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? What can man do unto me if the Lord is on my side? Nothing that the Lord does not allow them to do. Nothing that is outside of His sovereignty. If God, the God of the whole universe, if I call upon that, that God, if I call him my father who loves me, who is pitiful, as we saw in Psalm 102, as a father pities his children, if his divine son has called me his friend, if God is not ashamed, as Hebrews 11 says, to be called my God, what can man do unto me? What situation in this life is unbearable when God is on my side? What situation in life is insurmountable if God is on my side? What sorrow can overwhelm me, can overwhelm the Spirit of God, the Spirit of joy that is inside me, if God is on my side? What fear can overpower me if the Spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind is my advocate, if He indwells me? Nathaniel spoke to us not long ago about Psalm 118.5. Not everyone was there. It was was at at the Rogers house in, in an evening. The psalmist speaks of calling upon the Lord in his distress. And he rightly said there, the word literally there, distress, means I called upon the Lord in a tight place. And so he says, I called upon the Lord in my distress, in this tight space, and he set me in a large place. He removed the constraints, the tightness. The Lord took him out of the tight place and put him in a large place. If God can do this because the Lord is on his side, if this is the God we serve, who loves us with an everlasting love and who has shown us how much he loves us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son to die on the cross for us and has shown us how much he loves us by putting his spirit inside our hearts, which cries, Abba, Father. And he has validated his love for us in that he has forgiven us if that is the God that we, f- that we serve, if He can turn my sorrows into gladness, if He can turn my fears into confidence, if the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and longsuffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, if He can become my gladness and He can become my confidence, then what can man do unto me? Then what worry can remain? Then what sorrow and fear can sustain. Verses 8 and 9, psalmist writes, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. To this end, it is far better for me to put my trust in the Lord than it is to put my trust in man. If this is the Lord that I serve, if this is the capability of my God, If this is the God that has reached out and initiated a relationship with me, see, I didn't have to go find God. God came to me. I didn't have to go to the highest hill or to the deepest depths. I didn't have to go to the wise sage, the the, the, the 50th degree of his craft to find God. The word is very nigh unto me, right? The word of God is here. God is accessible. The heavens declare the glory of God. And if this God is near, so much so that when I accepted Christ as my Savior, He indwells me. Far better to put my trust in Him than to put my confidence in man. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Is it better to put my trust in man or to put my trust in in the Lord? Is it better to put my trust in the Lord than to put my confidence in man, in anything that this world can provide, in anything that man can do? It is better to put my confidence in the Lord than even if I were to have the greatest of earth's men on my side. The world can offer solutions, but their solutions grounded only in this world, right? Only in the temporal, only in the physical, only in the material. Only that which will one day vanish. Only in this place where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. If I have no other solution than to run to man who himself is often overcome by trials of the world, if I have no other solution than to run to people who are just as frail as I am to solve my problems, well, then I guess I have to run to men who are just as frail as I am to solve my problems, men whose feet are as clay as mine are, men who are as dust as I am, a society, an institution, a framework that is rooted in man's wisdom. If I must, then I suppose I must. But what if the God of all flesh was on my side? What if the God who created me also loved me? What if the God of the universe said, call unto me and I will answer thee? Wow. What if God was on your side? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Verses 10 through 13. All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. It is here that we come to the conviction that this psalm references a time, uh, perhaps the time that Judah spent in captivity in Babylon. Most people speculate that this psalm was written uh, around that time or after that time, after the tremendous overthrow, what we just studied in Jeremiah, what we're studying right now in Lamentations, when her enemies had surrounded her and she rested her confidence not in the sorrow and fear of the circumstances within which she was in Babylon when she was taken into captivity, in the enemies that were there, but instead in the promises of the Lord that God would be her refuge and strength, that God would redeem her from all trouble. The psalmist speaks of the enemies surrounding like bees or like a fire among thorns. If you've ever seen pine needles burn, then you know this. Or if you've ever seen bees swarm, uh, there are those times where uh, every once in a while they have uh, some clip on YouTube or whatever of, of, of bees that swarm a car. If you've ever seen one of those where bees are all over a car or, or whatever the case may be, and they're just these swarms of bees or, or of pine needles burning. Uh, we are coming up to Christmas and every year following Christmas, my wife and I, uh, primarily my wife, I suppose, not so much me. She likes to go around and do it. She'll go find some of the Christmas trees that people put out on their curbs and she'll bring them back and we'll cut them up and we'll throw those pine needles into our fireplace to make everything smell good in the house. And if you've ever taken those trees and you've cut up those trees or whatever, and it, if you've ever burned you know, a, a pine tree that, that's been dry, those needles, they catch quick and they just, boom, And then, boom, they're gone, right? They, they catch on fire really quick, they burn really fast, they smell really good, and then they're gone. It's done. Very, very fast. That's the idea here. He says they're, they, they are quenched as the fire of thorns, right? These things that catch really quickly, they burn really fast, they're there for a moment, and then boom, they're going to be quenched. And that is the confidence that Israel had put in the Lord that the Lord would overcome, that the Lord would protect them. See, they are in a, a bad place at this time, whatever it might be, possibly the captivity. We, we, we presume that context. And they say, things look bad, but the Lord is on my side. Such is the picture that the psalmist gives of his enemies. They come quickly, they burn ferociously, but they last only for a moment for they are are as temporal as the flames of fire. But see, our Redeemer is eternal. For all of the ferocity of the sorrows and fears of this world, the Lord is our help. Verses 14 through 16. The Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing in salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Notice the repetition. So it is not man. It is not princes. It is not circumstances. It is not institutions. No government or church or or health or wealth. The Lord is my strength and my song and notice the the particular context of that that the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous one of the times where we kind of get this wrong is we say lord all of these difficult things are happening all of these terrible circumstances and you're not delivering me out of them and the terrible circumstances are rooted in the fact that we're wallowing in our own sin we're living in bitterness we're living in unforgiveness We're living in lust or covetousness. We're living in in dishonor or disrespect. We're living in rebellion or we're living in lies. And And we're living out the consequences of our own unrighteousness. And then we're saying, God, where is your salvation? And God says, I'm where I always was. Where are you? Where are you? You're wallowing in the muck, and the mud of your own own sin. And I'm here saying, I'm ready for you. I'm ready to clean you up. I'm ready to redeem you. I'm ready to give you what I've promised. But you got to get out of the mud. See, because the voice of rejoicing in salvation, it's in the tabernacle of the righteous. And this is where the psalmist says in Psalm 84, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, because even if you're a doorkeeper in the house of God, that's the house wherein is the voice of rejoicing. That is the house wherein is the voice of salvation. So better to be the lowest of the low in the kingdom of God than to be the highest of the high in the tents of the wicked. And so that's the context within which we see this rejoicing. This is the context within which you see this deliverance. This deliverance and this rejoicing is in the place, the tabernacles, the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord in that tent, in that tabernacle, does valiantly. The Lord is my strength and my song, and by faith He has become my salvation. To that end, it is in the presence of the Lord. It is in this place of righteousness where is the voice of rejoicing and salvation? The tabernacle of the righteous is where God rests His joy. The strength of the Lord undergirds me in that place. They that wait upon the Lord, we considered, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It is not the strength of nations or of communities or of institutions that deliver It is the strength of God. So we get on God's side. And once we're on God's side, we look for God to do great things. And it is for this reason that we are called to trust Him. It is on this basis that we are exo- uh, uh, exhorted and comforted and strengthened. Because in this world, as in the next, I don't have to be my own strength. You don't have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't have to be your own anchor. You don't have to be your own strength when it's time to approach the day. You wake up and you say, what's going to get me through this day? Well, it doesn't have to be your strength. What's going to get me through this time of tremendous sorrow? Well, it doesn't just have to be some kernel of, uh, of, of strength inside of you. You don't have to be your own strength when it's time to face those great fears. You don't have to be the one in whom you place your confidence, your strength, your abilities, your connections, your capacities. That does not have to be where your maximum potential lies. What is any of that to God? What is, any, what is you on your greatest day compared to God? And you on your greatest day may be a great thing but compared to God? What is your pastor on his best day compared to the Holy Spirit of God actually working through him? What is your pastor's capacity to teach or to counsel or to minister or to conduct business on his best day as compared to God and his greatness and his wisdom and his power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men and the power of the Holy Spirit? in the life of this church. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, if God makes the rain to fall, if God holds the very power of life and death in His hand, if the nations are but a drop in the bucket to the Lord, if God holds the oceans in the hollow of His hand, if He has meted out the worlds with a span, then what can God do for you? What can God do with you? If only we would trust Him, obey Him. If only we would place ourselves in the tabernacle of the righteous. Verses 17 and 18, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but He hath not given me over unto death. I shall not die but live. My circumstances will not overwhelm me. I will be brought to the other side and live to declare the works of the Lord. This is the reality which compels our thoughts and actions. The Lord has chastened me sore, the psalmist says here. Once again, another speculation that they may be in captivity at this time. I've been chastened, the psalmist says. I've gone through some terrible, terrible things. There's been some bad days, and this has been the chastening hand of the Lord. And we know from Psalm chapter 3 that whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he's well pleased. But see, that's the thing. I'm going to chasten my children because I love them, but I'm not going to break them. I seek to break their will, but I never seek to break their spirit, right? I am going to lovingly chasten my children, but I'm not going to destroy them because I love them if God has brought upon me even the consequences of my own actions, if I am living in a circumstance and it's not what I would choose, yet what I can know is that God is faithful and that if He is on my side, and He is, and if I am on His side, which is my choice, then I will not be overwhelmed. I will not die but live. The Lord may chasten me sore, but He will not give me over unto death. God is faithful. And this grounds me in thanksgiving because it means that I don't have to go through my sorrow alone. And I don't have to be overtaken by it. I don't have to go through my fears alone, my insecurities alone, my uh, difficulties alone. And I don't have to be overcome by them. It means I don't have to be overwhelmed by my circumstances because I serve a God who is above all of those circumstances. And the God who is able to see me through these things, his faithfulness by no means implies that I'll never face trials. We talked about that this morning as well. But his faithfulness does assure me that his loving hand will be over those circumstances. And this inspires me unto a reaction, a reaction of which I read in verses 19 through 21. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise God. The Lord, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. If all of this is true, if this is the God I serve, if this is his greatness, if if this is his love, if this is his wonder, if this is his if this is his mercy, if his mercy truly does endure forever, then the psalmist says, put me in there, open those gates and let me walk into that place. Get me into that tabernacle, the tabernacle of the righteousness. Open the gates of righteousness and I will go in. If this is the God that I serve, if this is the God who loves me, if this is the God who has laid all this before me, if the Lord is so strong and His faithfulness is so sure that those that rest upon his presence uh, rest in his presence can truly say, "If the Lord is on my side, I will not fear, what can man do unto me? If that is the God that is in the heavens, then open that gate to me and I 'm going to walk through that. We can be so interesting, can't we humans we're so selfish we 're so short-sighted, aren't we? How often do we trade the blessings of eternity for some temporal pleasure? How often do we trade the nutrient-rich blessings of, of spiritual food for the cotton candy of this world? And it's silly, isn't it? I mean, it's truly absurd that we would do so. The psalmist looks at the God that we serve, and he looks at his limitlessness and his abundant love that's combined with this limitlessness. And he says, if that is God, I want to be right. I want to be right by him. Like James and John, who said, Lord, let me sit at your right hand. Right. And then the mother who says, may, may my children sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom. He says, it's not mine to give. But you know what? We should all want to sit there. Shouldn't we? Lord, Place me at your right hand. That's where I want to be. I want to be as close to you as possible. When that gate opens, I'm going to be the first in line. We're going to see, you know, if, 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 if you want to brave, brave the, the materialistic craziness of Black Friday this Friday, what you would find is people that are waiting in line for hours to be the first one through those doors. Well, I don't know if you're going to do any of that on Friday, but let me tell you this. We ought to be, that ought to be our mindset with the gates of righteousness. (laughs) I'm going to camp out at those gates. I'm going to be the first one there when they open. Get me in that door. Open wide the gates of righteousness and I'm going to enter in there. Who is it in this world that can rest in confidence of the fullness of the Lord's faithfulness? Well, who's on the Lord's side? They are the ones that can rest in confidence of the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord is on the side of those who are on his side. If the Lord promises to be on my side, then by all means, I'm going to get on his. The righteous enter into the gate of the presence of the Lord, and it is there where my circumstances give way to thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. I'm standing in the gates. I've walked through the gates and I'm in the tabernacle of righteousness. My Lord is there. The enemy is without, but they can't come in here. There's no admittance for them. And in here, God's in charge. What can man do unto me? That ought to make you thankful. So it is that we find a symbiotic relationship of which we cannot overlook and we cannot overestimate. The Lord is on my side, and I get on His side. I get on the Lord's side because He is on my side, and as I get on His side, He is all the more an advocate for me. One cannot exist in the fullness of the Lord's blessings without being fully committed to Him. And this is not because God changes Indeed, God cannot change, but only that His reactions and dispositions change in accordance with my faith and my obedience. As the song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so I will praise Him. So I will rest in an abundance of thanksgiving. Because what else can I do? What else can I is an appropriate response. What else is a valid response to all that the Lord has done and desires to do for me, but to be thankful? Now, the Psalms, believe it or not, are heavily messianic in nature. I think most of you know this. It's within the Psalms that we find many of the insights into the nature of the coming of the one who would be called Messiah, who we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And in this context, we find a very important Messianic prophecy. In the context of this concept, this concept of God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering, when surrounded by enemies, of thanksgiving in the midst of sorrow and of fear, when God allows trials and suffering, the fact that God has chastened me sore, but He has not allowed me to be overcome, and only in His faithfulness has He chastened me, giving me confidence to endure. In the context of all of that, we find these words in verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner." This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The declaration of that day seeks to root the minds of the singers in the reality that God exalts the lowly. That those in power, perhaps in this context Babylon, sought to dispose of the stone, which would be Judah, and yet in god's faithfulness that very stone will become the chief cornerstone in other words israel is ex- exuding its confidence that the lord will in his time be their overcome be, be the one who would help them over to overcome that their enemies would be overcome that they the stone which the builders at this time have refused would one day be the chief of the corner yet we find that this is not just about judah is it we find that this is a poignant prophecy Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That in God's faithfulness, the stone that is rejected becomes the chief of the corner. Our Lord Jesus Christ used these very words to declare his own rejection and eventual exaltation before the Lord. This verse is used not just by Christ, but it's used as a reference point throughout the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter 4, it's used in Romans chapter 9, it's used in Ephesians chapter 2, it's used in 1 Peter chapter 2. Why is it messianic? Certainly the Scriptures intend to speak of Christ here. Certainly the Spirit of God inspired these words, knowing that Jesus Christ would empty Himself and embody the fullness of this chief cornerstone idea. But Christ is the fullness of these words because Christ is the fullness of the Word of God. These words are a reflection of Jesus' life because Jesus lived 100% in line with God's will and character. Let me tell you what I mean here. Jesus was exalted to the highest because he submitted to the highest, to the greatest, to the maximal. Jesus is exalted above the heavens because Jesus obeyed in full. Jesus is the only one, if we can say it this way, who opened wide that gate of righteousness. And Christ has opened this gate so that we might enter in. Christ became the headstone of the corner so that we might be built atop as living stones. And that's the idea. Now, Jesus Christ becomes the chief cornerstone. That's not us, that's him. But what if you could just be stacked on top of him? What if you could just be a part of the same building? Wouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be enough to say, wow, God, I am a part of the building of Christ. I am a part of something so much greater than myself. I am a part of that which Jesus Christ himself did. Submit to the Father. So much so that he was exalted into the heavens that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that reality, I get to be a part of that. I get to be a part of that exaltation. I get to be a co-inheritor of that glory. That's worthy of thanksgiving. And so the psalmist says in verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We witness here what is very likely a double entendre, a double meaning. This is the day. What day? What day is this day? Well... We have two different possibilities. Probably it means both. First, the day when the stone that the builder rejected becomes the head of the corner. That day, I'm going to rejoice in that day. I'm going to rejoice in the day when the stone that the builder's rejected becomes the head of the corner. we, We just saw in the context that the stone that the builder's rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord hath made. The Lord has ordained that day. That day is going to come and I'm going to rejoice in that day. I'm going to rejoice in that day. Once again, it's the mindset that says that the Lord before me, who can be against me, if that victory is my end, then what is today? But another day that I'm going to rejoice in Him. Because every day can be a day of rejoicing, maybe not in the context of what's happening today, but most certainly in the context of what's going to happen tomorrow. Every day can be a day of rejoicing, that there is a day coming when the the stone that the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. We see that this is already reflected in the church, right? That Jesus has become the chief cornerstone of the church, and one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, And this is the Lord's doing. This day is marvelous in our eyes. The day that God exalts His own way, exalts His own will. The day the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted above the heavens. The day when the stone was rolled away. The glory yet future when Jesus will return again. And that is the Lord's doing. And this because Jesus is the embodiment of God's promises. So that each day that we live, we live in the confidence of our salvation as we spoke of this morning. We experience the joys of spiritual fruit in our lives. We live in the blessedness of the Spirit of God, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Each day we see this as another testimony of God's sure coming. That day is a day in which I will rejoice and be glad And it's that very blessedness that allows me then to turn my gaze upon today. This day, this actual day. Perhaps the other meaning here. That if all of that is in place, and if that same God who exalts Jesus Christ to the heavens, the same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same God that caused the lepers to be healed and the blind to see and the lame to walk, if that same God walks with me and talks with me and he tells me I am his own and he's not ashamed to be called my God, if that same God is with me when I wake up in the morning and goes with me through the day and is with me when I close my eyes at night, then what can man do unto me? The sorrows of life, the trials of life, the fears of life, the confusions of life— the day of Christ's glorious resurrection, that's the day the Lord had made. The day of Christ's coming, that's the day the Lord has made. And nothing in heaven and earth can stand against the surety of those realities. Then I can know with just as much confidence that this day is the day that the Lord hath made that this week is the week that the Lord hath made, that this year is the year that the Lord hath made. And as I exercise that same obedience that Jesus Christ exercised, the same submission that Jesus Christ realized as He went to the cross and said, nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done, and we see the results of Jesus' submission and the results of His obedience was exaltation, then I could be confident that if I walk through the gates of of the righteous, and if I root myself in the tabernacle of the righteous, then I can expect that this day is a day of rejoicing and the Lord is on my side. As I walk in the footsteps of my Savior, I can expect that same God to do that same thing for me. God's same love, God's same faithfulness. And so I'm going to rejoice in today. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in this day. And I will not allow anything or anyone to convince me of anything less because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Verses 25 and 26. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord, in light of that coming day, the day of the Lord, the day when salvation would come out of Zion, the day when the rejected stone would become the head of the corner, the psalmist says, Save now, Lord. Save now. None of these things, all of this rejoicing, it's not going to mean that your troubles are necessarily going to go away, right? You're still going to have the problems, the interpersonal relationships, the people that fail, the circumstances that fail, the feet of clay. You're still going to be a sinner. You're still going to be in this body of, of death, as Paul calls it. But Lord, save now. May today be the day. May today be the day of your blessing. May today be the day that the people cry, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They are looking forward and saying, Lord, may you come today. May you save today. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Now we've seen that in part, right? We've seen a day when Jesus rode on the full of an ass through Jerusalem and they cried Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In fulfillment of this prophetic word. But of course, we still look forward to that day when the clouds will part and Jesus will return just as he left and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. And once again, they will say those words, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But while we wait on that day, our wait is not in vain. We do not wait in sorrow and misery. We do not wait in anxieties and distresses, for the Lord has left his comforter to work that same blessedness in us, the Holy Spirit of God, so that we can experience today what the psalmist cried out for on this day. Verses 27 and 28. God is the Lord which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Because it is God who has done these things, God who has shown us light. To that end, the psalmist calls for us to bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. The idea here is that you, because this is the God that you serve, go get your sacrifice, wrap it up, take it to the altar, lay it on as a thank offering. Serve the Lord today because this is the God you serve. So bless him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We're coming up to Thanksgiving Day. Now, we're supposed to live day by day in the context of Thanksgiving, but this is a wonderful time to remember. And on that day, let's offer up unto him our thanksgivings. Let's bind with cords our sacrifice and let's take it to his altar and let's lay it before him and say, God, you're worthy. I don't know what that is. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to actually go kill something and bind it up and burn it. I don't know what that sacrifice would be. I don't know what that thanksgiving is going to look like for you. But let's not forget to thank our God. This God, this great God, this God of faithfulness, this God of wonder, this God by whom there's coming a day, a day in which I rejoice and I am glad. This God is my God, so I will praise him. I will exalt him. He's my God, and I will love him, and I will thank him, and I will serve him. Final verse, verse 29. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. We end where we began. Thanksgiving. God's mercy endureth forever. This is my God. And if this is my God, then not only can I be thankful and confident that he holds my tomorrow so that I can rejoice in my salvation and in my redemption and in my justification, but I can be thankful and confident that regardless of any circumstances, God holds my today. I need not rest under the crippling weight of fear, under the crippling weight of sorrow, or of worry, Because the God of my tomorrow is the God of my today. Because the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? This has been the legacy. We spoke of Hebrews 11. This has been the legacy of men and women throughout the generations when we talk about faith and we walk through the, the Hebrews 11 and all of those elements of faith, we saw some wonderful things about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and, and, and uh, Rahab and, and Jephthah and Barak and Samson. We saw all these wonderful things about faith. But, you know, as we walk through the Old Testament Scriptures, we also see a legacy of, 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 of faith as it relates to circumstances themselves. So Job. And Job chapter 1 is a man who loves the Lord and does what's right. And God o- opens the door for Satan to touch his life. And he loses everything but his life in one day and his health, right? He loses his cattle and he loses his fields and he loses his 10 children. And he finds himself at what we could rightly call the depths of human misery. We might wait until after he has the boils and such to call it that. But he's pretty low. Right when he's lost his family and when he's lost his wealth and when he's lost his livelihood. And it is within this context that Job says those famous words. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What compels a man to say that in that moment? What brings a man to the point in his thinking, to the point in his mindset where his visceral reaction, where his reflex action, his spiritual reflex action in that moment of the deepest pain and sorrow of his life is to worship the Lord, to bless the Lord, to offer his thanksgivings unto God. It's a man that understands this very idea. See, he was living in the tabernacle of the righteous. And so he had no doubt, even in this moment, that the Lord was on his side. And if the Lord was on his side, what could man do unto him? And it's not just Job. It it, it is what enabled Hannah to rise from her tears as she begged for a son in confidence that the Lord had heard her prayer for a child. In the depths of her sorrow, to rise in confidence and joy, to clean herself up and to go home. It is what compelled David to bless the Lord as he ran for his life, hiding in caves in the wilderness, not knowing if that was going to be his final day, wondering how it is that the anointed of the Lord could be running for his life from the king whom he loved and served and was loyal to with every fiber of his being. The kind of legacy that allowed Stephen to cry, Father, forgive them, as the stones rained down upon him, as a man named Saul held the garments, and they stoned him to death. The kind of context, the kind of thanksgiving, the kind of mindset that compelled Paul to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'll take pleasure in distresses and in persecutions for Christ's sake if that's what he's asking of me. See, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because my weakness is God's strength. Because if God before me, who can be against me? Because if the Lord is on my side, what can man do unto me? Men and women in every age of the church singing their songs of thanksgiving, making odes uh, of joy to the God of their salvation, resting in a confidence that transcends circumstances because they knew, as we know now, that the Lord is on our side because they dwelt in the tabernacle of the righteous. So what can man do unto you? I don't know all of the sorrows and fears and anxiety that rest in your heart, of what this year has meant for you and what you have looking ahead, but I know the God of tomorrow and I know the God of today and I know that he's faithful. And so what do we do? Well, first off, we get on his side. And once you're there, rest. Rest in that God of your salvation. Have confidence. And let us remember to give thanks unto the Lord this week, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in you. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I pray this for our church, for our marriages, for our families. I pray this for our country as it relates to our interaction, that we would trust in the Lord our God. I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are hurting, who are sorrowful, who are confused, who are frustrated, who are overwhelmed, who are fearful, who are anxious, that they would trust in the name of the Lord their God. And I pray for us this week that as we are called to live in the context of thanksgiving, that this week would afford for us a unique opportunity to focus in on all that you have done for us and of your worthiness to be thanked.